Okay. Well, most everybody came back, it looks like. Missing a few today after the exam. Wasn't that bad, I hope. Actually, the average was pretty good. The average was 39 out of 50 or 78%, which is may not seem high for some, but it actually for my exams, it's relatively high. I've had exams that average down in the 60s. So actually, you guys did pretty good. So, so good work. If you're not, question? Yeah. Do you offer any extra credit? Do I offer any extra credit? <laughs> I already gave you extra credit. I'm admitting to anything, but you know, I'm, I'm all about extra credit. Um, I do give a couple of opportunities over the course of the year. It's not a lot. There's you know, a 10 point here or a 10 point there. It's not going to be a 500 point extra credit or a 100 point extra credit assignment. But I usually do give a couple scattered little things over the course of the year. <laughs> so, but, okay. But class overall did, did, do, did, do, did do very well. Uh, if you didn't do well or you're not happy with it, don't throw it away. Keep it anyway. Uh, even if you did do well, nobody got a perfect score. Everybody missed at least something. Uh, find out what the correct answer was. These are what you want to use to study for half your final. These four exams are half of your final. I'm going to redo questions from them and that's what you're studying for the first half of your final. So don't throw them away. I do recommend you going through. I'm not going to go through and give you all the correct answers. Obviously, if you got a true-false wrong, you should know what the answer is. But uh, do go look at the other ones and I'd sketch in the right answers and try to figure out what you missed there. If there's a specific question on it, I'll be more than happy to go over it with you. If you want to catch me before or after class or anything, I can, you know, I can be happy to do that or stop by office hours or whatever. I'll be happy to go over and give you the right answers. But I would like you to at least go through and try to find, you know, find out what you missed first. So next exam will probably be I think I have it scheduled shortly after this right now, probably about the end of the month, depending on how fast we get, we get through everything. Any questions on, on that? Zach? Don't, know, don't quite know all the names yet. Zach. There you go, sir. All right. I did make one slight change to the schedule. We're going to ch start Chapter 3 today, and we'll be through a good chunk of it by Friday. But since I know a lot of you turn in paper copies of the homework, you're not going to be, that's really all you'd have of me talking about chapter 3 is what I got through today. So I went ahead and extended homework 2 through Monday. That'll give me a little bit more time uh, for you to work on it. You're not working too much, too much ahead of me. So I've given you a couple extra, a couple of extra days on that. Of course, that does make it due the same, the same day as the two quizzes. So you do still have the two quizzes. Those dates haven't changed. I should be through through pretty much all of chapter 3 by Monday, so by the time you take that quiz, you should be good. Should be good. Um, everything else is still about the same. The two quizzes are due this week, and the article review is due a week from Friday, and then homework 3, which I will probably give out to you on Friday. Well, may wait till Monday. It's scheduled right now to be due the 27th. Again, I will adjust those as needed depending on the depending on the actual how far, where we are. I'm not going to have you do homework you know, two weeks ahead of where I'm getting it to it. There you go, ma'am. So, questions, questions? I say if they are, if there's anything you can't find on the exam that what you got wrong, you know, let me know. I'll be more than happy to go, to go over it with you afterwards. Alrighty. Picture of the day for today then. A lady launch streak. If you were out looking last Friday, there was actually a rocket launch that was visible from here. Did you get to see it? Yeah, we were up on my roof. Okay. Yeah. 
it was a very I, I didn't get to see, I didn't get to see it. I should have. I probably I think it was much later than I what was it like. What time was it? It was about eleven twenty-eight. Okay. Like they said they were going to last twenty-seven. You could see it twenty-eight. Okay, so that's about right. Yeah. But yeah, I had I actually had one student in one of my other classes who actually went down to Virginia. It was launched from Virginia. Went down for the launch, and um, a couple others who had mentioned that they've seen it. So we have a couple that were able to see it from see it from here. Um, this is actually the launch of a satellite that is going into Earth orbit right now and then going to be heading to the moon. So the LADE, L-A-D-E-E, -E, is the name of the as the satellite that's being launched. And make sure I get the acronym right. That is the Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer. Not testing you on that. Don't worry about it. But so. Lunar atmosphere, first of all, what's that? Where's the lunar atmosphere? The moon doesn't have any atmosphere, right? Well, actually, the moon does. Very thin atmosphere. The moon has about one million particles in each uh, cubic centimeter. Cubic centimeter, so a centimeter by a centimeter, a little cube, oh, sugar cube size. In that, the, moon, the moon's atmosphere is about a million particles per cubic centimeter. How is that hardly any atmosphere? That's nothing compared to what we have on the Earth. If we did that for the Earth, it would be, what is the number? Let me get the right number of zeros. That's how many you've got in the Earth in each cubic centimeter. The atmosphere you're breathing right now, ten quintillion. <laughs> there, ten quintillion particles in every cubic centimeter. So each breath of air, think of how many particles you're taking in from the atmosphere. So the moon is essentially a decent vacuum. Yeah, it's a pretty good vacuum here on Earth. You're taking out almost all the particles. It would be a real good vacuum. But there is an atmosphere there to study. It still does have some particles that are there, that are trapped around the moon, that are trapped around the surface of the moon. So what is this is going to be studying is the atmosphere of the moon and the dust that is kicked up. You know, meteorites kick up dust and material into that, and some of that holds around the moon as, an a as a little atmosphere, much like the atmosphere we have on Earth, again, just much, much thinner. But still much more dense than what we get out in space. When you get out in you know, space and talking about um, different, uh, just space itself, you're talking about a particle or less than one particle average in each cubic centimeter, just empty space. There's, now there's still particles scattered there, but you're talking about one particle. Moon has a lot more than that. Some of the big nebulae that we look at have this amount or even a little bit more. But they're still pretty good vacuums by Earth, standard, Earth standards when you're talking about many, many more particles per, per in, every little, in every little sugar cube worth of atmosphere. So that was the launch that was going out here. It is going into, it's, going, it's in Earth orbit right now. We launched things a little bit differently than we used to when we sent astronauts to the moon. They had a much bigger rocket that would take them straight to the moon. Uses a lot more, uh, a lot more fuel, a lot more energy, a lot bigger rocket, a lot harder to launch, more problems perhaps. 
Uh, the rockets now are smaller and doesn't take as much energy then to launch it. You don't need as much fuel to launch a smaller rocket into space. But it takes it more time to get to the moon, even though the moon is so close to us. It goes into Earth orbit first. And then what it does is it loops around the Earth a couple times. So it'll go into a little Earth orbit and it'll be orbiting around the Earth. And every time it gets down here, it fires its rocket to give it a little boost. It's like pushing a kid on a swing, right? When they get down, you get them there, give them another push, they go a little bit higher. So you push it in a little bit higher orbit and it will slowly expand the orbit out. So we could do it with something like this, of course. We're not sending people up there, so it's not like we have to carry food and water supplies for anything. We're just carrying a satellite up. So it will take it you know, a number of days or weeks before it actually gets a large enough orbit and then kicks off and heads into orbit around the moon. And then it's supposed to study that for the next couple of months and study this atmosphere, the atmosphere and the dust and the material around the moon, something that hasn't been studied. But it wasn't that long ago that you considered that the moon, we really considered the moon didn't have any atmosphere at all, you know, not even this much, and that the moon didn't have any water on it. Right? Moon is no water, it's completely dry. Well, actually, we're finding ice on the moon. Buried in some craters, there's actually signs of ice deposits on the moon. So some very interesting things that we are finding that have, you know, changing our understanding of the moon. So here we're learning about the atmosphere. We're going to study that in more detail. And not all that long ago, we actually found that the moon does have water. Not liquid water, but ice on its surface uh, buried in some of the craters near its, near its poles. So, little jump off into planetary astronomy this time, but interesting picture nonetheless. Questions? No questions today. Okay. All right. Well, let's go finish up chapter two. No, we're not redoing. All right. So, what we're going to talk about now is the Doppler effect. Doppler effect is how the wavelength of a wave changes when you're moving towards it or it's moving towards you. Yeah. It's all relative. It doesn't matter which, which is happening. You can be moving towards the source of that source of that wave. You can be moving further away. But there is a change in it. There is a change in the wavelength of the, of the wave. The whole um, the equation is given here. Nice yucky one. It's not, not quite as bad as it seems. It tells you that the apparent wavelength and the true wavelength and how those relate to the speed. So when we talk about light waves, this wave speed is always the speed of light. We know what that is. And what that means, first of all, there's two separate equations here, just so you don't get confused. This is just saying there's a relationship between wavelength and frequency and they're just inverted. So that's one part of it. And then either one of those you can set up equal to this. So really what we normally look at is the wavelengths in astronomy, so that the apparent wavelength, where we observe this line to be, divided by the true wavelength, where is it supposed to be? Okay, so if it was supposed to be at 656 nanometers, and we observe, and it's observed at 658 nanometers, it's been shifted by two, by two nanometers. 
So we know how we can see how much it's shifted. We observe this in some object in space at some wavelength. We observe this line. We know where it should be because we can measure it in a laboratory at rest here on Earth. And we observe it at a different wavelength. So we know the apparent wavelength. We know the true wavelength. When we're talking about light and light waves of any kind, radio waves, x-rays, gamma rays, visible light, we know the wave speed. It's always the speed of light. That means I can find the velocity. We can always find the velocity if we know, once we observe, all we really have to observe is one thing. We have to observe where that, uh, how much that spectrum has been shifted, how much that line has been shifted. So, first of all, if we look at these numbers that I've put up on the board first, 656 nanometers, that's where we should see this line. We see it at 658. It's been shifted towards a longer wavelength. So it's a longer wavelength and that's shifted towards the red or we call it a red shift. So you shift it towards a longer wavelength towards the red edge of the spectrum. That tells us immediately just looking at that we can tell you that this object is moving away from us. A red shift occurs when the object is moving away. So the shifts are very small typically. Um, that can be a relatively large shift. That would be an incredibly fast moving object to shift it by two whole nanometers. There are objects that shift it by this amount or even more that we would look at later in the course when we get out to the edges of the universe. For the most part for stars and things that would be, that would be a very fast, relatively fast moving star. Now, if you take that same line and instead of observing it at 658, you observed it at 654 nanometers. It's supposed to be here. You observe a star and you find out that it's, that same line is at the wrong spot. It's at 654. Again, we could go through a calculation. I think I give you one in the homework somewhere to do a, do a calculation, do one calculation on this to figure out how fast it's coming. But the first thing you can tell me, you're observing it at a shorter wavelength. That means, whoops, shorter wavelength. That's called the blue shift. That's why I switched markers. That's a blue shift and that means that the object is moving towards you. So if you see a star where the wavelengths are shifted, you know that's moving towards you. That doesn't mean we're on a collision course. Okay, you could have a star here and we're sitting here, here's the Earth. A, a shift moving towards you could mean it's moving in this direction. It's moving par tor in the, our general direction. Its motion is partially towards us. But it might doesn't mean it's necessarily going to collide with us. So there's a whole range here where the star could be moving towards us and there's a whole range where it could be moving away. It doesn't mean it's moving straight away, directly away from the Earth. It could be moving off at some angle. Could be coming towards us at some angle. So by the time this actually, billions of years from now when it gets where it's supposed to be, that might end up being light years away from the Earth. So it doesn't mean that it will ever actually hit us. So when you see, you know, something is blue shifted or it's coming towards us, it doesn't mean necessarily a collision course. 
It just means that it's coming in the general direction of the Earth, that it's heading on this half of the diagram. It's heading towards the Earth, not away from the Earth. So that's the equation. And I, th- I give you one example. I think I gave you one on the homework to go through. I didn't bring the homework today, but I think you have one at the end to go through a calculation. Usually I give you one to go through a calculation just to do that one time to, to have seen it. And to give a change in a wavelength and figure that out and figure out the, and to calculate the velocity. Now the Doppler effect depends on the relative motion. So it doesn't depend on, it doesn't matter who's really doing the moving. Um, The Doppler effect is something you're familiar with in some ways. Not in terms of light. You don't really see light shifting, right? If you see a blue shift, you don't head towards a red light and see it turn green, right? The the actual red light turn green, not the light change itself, obviously. But if you drive fast enough towards it, it would. If you've got a high enough speed going, you're going to shift those red photons down, down the spectrum to a, much higher, to a much higher frequency, a much shorter wavelength, and the red light would physically turn green, right? You've got to go a little over half the speed of light to do that. So it's not something you're ever going to do. If you can get your car up to half the speed of light, you've got something going pretty good there then, right? It doesn't take you any time. You can go around the Earth in a, f- in a fraction of a second. But it, would ha- it could happen if you're going that fast. We see that in astronomy. There are objects that are moving fast enough that you can shift wavelengths that are observed, that are created you know, way, off in the, way off in the ultraviolet, and we see them in the visible part of the spectrum. They're shifted way across the spectrum when we look at the most distant objects. So it does happen in astronomy. It won't happen here on Earth, not with light, but it does with sound. Right? If you're ever uh, standing watching you know, a police car fire engine go by, what do you hear? You hear a real high pitch coming towards you, right? Real high pitch, and then it passes by you, and all of a sudden the pitch changes. So you know whoever's in there is sitting there waiting, oh, passing that guy, push the button, let me change the frequency of the horn, right? No, that's all the waves getting bunched up as they come towards you, giving you a much higher pitch. Yes, this is for visible light, but it works just the same for uh, sound. It gets all bunched up as it comes towards you, you get a higher pitch. Once it passes you, then all the wavelengths are stretched out and you get a much lower pitch. So that you're familiar with it in terms of sound. Any kind of sound is go- coming towards you is going to be a much higher pitch. As it's going away from you, it's going to be a much lower pitch. Light does exactly the same thing and it gives us a way to be able to measure velocities. It's a way to actually measure how fast things are moving out in space. Again, it's not something easy to do. We can't go out there, you know, we can't just clock how fast these stars are moving. Their motions are incredibly slow, I mean incredibly, incredibly fast, but the size of these distances are so large, we don't see them move. Right? We don't watch stars move. You look at the constellations now, right? You go look at the Big Dipper, does it look any different than it was when you were little? It hasn't changed. It has very slightly. All those stars are moving very slightly relative to each other. And astronomers can measure those tiny motions, but to people looking at it, you can't see the differences. They look exactly the same as they did now, as they did 20 years ago, as they did 100 years ago. It doesn't look any different. So this is one way to measure those velocities when we cannot see that. We cannot watch things like stars and even galaxies, watching galaxies move is you know, a very slow process. You've got to wait millions and millions or longer years to be able to see that. 
What I'm trying to emphasize in this one though is that it does not matter who's doing the moving. It only matters the relative motion. So it doesn't matter if you are, um, if, the, if you're standing on the street corner and the fire engine goes by you, you get the same effect as if the fire engine is standing still blaring its siren and you go by it and you pass by it. You're going to get the same effect. As you're going towards it, you're going to get a higher pitch. As you go away from it, you're going to get a lower. It really does, it makes no difference actually what object is doing the moving, whether it's you or the other object. There you go. Yep. Okay. And let's see. I think I had one more. When we shift it, we're not talking about just one line. We're talking about the entire spectrum. So this is an example of hydrogen. So this is the hydrogen spectrum. There's that red line at about 656 nanometers. A uh, bluish green line, a bunch of blue lines, and a bunch of purple lines. What we see is if that object is moving away from us, we see a shift. Every single line will be shifted towards the red end. In this case, towards the left end of the spectrum. If it's moving towards us, every single line, the pattern stays exactly the same, but every single line is shifted towards the blue end of the spectrum. So it's just a shift in the pattern of lines. The pattern itself doesn't change, so we can still recognize it. If an astronomer sees this, they can recognize it as hydrogen. It's just shifted, and then we can use that to figure out you know, how much is the shift tells us how fast it's moving. The bigger the shift, the faster the object is moving, either towards us or away from us. So in this case, we have one object moving away from us at 300 kilometers per second. There's a little bit of a shift there between those. If we look at another object that's approaching us at twice the speed, see how the shift is about twice the amount. So a little shift here, about twice the amount of shift here. If you're moving 10 times faster, you're going to get 10 times the shift. 100 times faster, 100 times the shift. So the amount of the shift tells you how fast you're moving. The direction of the shift, whether it's to the red or towards the blue, tells you whether it's moving towards or away from us. All right. So questions on chapter two? I'll go through the summary here. Let's see if there's anything. Or on the Doppler effect specifically. All right. Well, uh, we talked about waves, um, period, wavelength, amplitude, the crest, the trough, all the different definitions I gave you there. Uh, I talked about how the electromagnetic waves were created uh, by accelerating charged particles. And that's what we see, and that's everything that we see in astronomy. The visible spectrum is different wavelengths of light, the entire visible spectrum, everything red through violet. So it's a variation in the wavelength. The only difference is the change is how, uh, how, how long that wavelength is. That's the only difference between the different colors of light that we see. But the visible spectrum itself is just a tiny portion of the entire electromagnetic spectrum. The entire electromagnetic spectrum includes everything. It includes radio waves, infrared waves, visible light, ultraviolet, gamma rays, and x-rays. And that is the entire spectrum. But they're all the same. They're all the same type of radiation. It doesn't matter. A, a radio wave is essentially the same as a 
visible light wave. Radio waves got a wavelength this long. Visible light has a minuscule, measured in billionths of a meter wavelength. But other than that, their properties, the rest of their properties are exactly the same. So everything that we said for visible light in terms of the Doppler effect works if you're measuring in infrared, works if you're measuring in radio, ultraviolet. All those properties remain exactly the same. We can learn, we're starting to get some of the ideas how we can learn about the properties of different objects out in space. We can't go out and stick a thermometer in the sun to figure out how hot it is, right? First of all, it would melt long before it got there, it would be vaporized. But there are ways by measuring the radiation that we can actually tell the temperature. So we can actually measure the temperature of the sun very accurately by studying its radiation. And we can use that and we can also study other stars. Um, I talked a little uh, a bit last time about spectroscopy and a spectroscope splits the light beam into its components and that's what we're going to work on on lab on Friday. I'm going to do something with that and give you a chance to look at some of these. We looked at the different types of spectra that could be produced. On Friday you'll get to see a continuous spectrum. You'll get to see an emission spectrum. I don't have a good way right now to show you an absorption spectrum in here yourself. But you'll get to see though, you'll get to see these two, and we see we'll see a lot of images of this one. It works real well in astronomy. It's not, a, it's not an easy one to create here uh, in the in the laboratory. So, but that's how we really tell a lot about what's going on. We need this to use the Doppler effect. We need to be able to split the light into its component frequencies. We need to be able to see that spectrum. We need to be able to see either the emission or absorption lines of an object in order to measure that shift. A continuous spectrum doesn't tell us a whole lot. And finally we use that spectrum to be able to tell, we talked about velocities, we talked about temperatures, we can use it to tell uh, what the object is made up of by looking at the pattern of lines. So we can learn to can tell us really all about the different astronomical objects. That's how we learn everything about them. We can't go get samples, we can't go take temperatures, we can't go you know, put things on scales. You know, we don't have the advantages that other scientists do. You know, if chemists can sit there and play with the chemicals and experiment, what happens if I do this and this? Astronomers don't have that advantage. You can't go experiment with the star. What, what if I make it a little bit hotter? What if I make it a little bit cooler? What happens? You can't. All you can do is observe things and, and go from that and try to make, use your, make your models that way. We explained how we got the different lines with the model of the atom. And that emission and absorption lines depend on how you jump. Jump between those different energy levels. So when you go from a higher energy level to a lower energy level, you give off energy and you emit a photon. If you go from lower to higher, you're absorbing energy and absorbing a photon. So absorbing a particle of light. And then today we talked about the Doppler effect changing the frequency or the wavelength of what we see works for visible light, works for infrared, ultraviolet, radio, all of those. Uh, works for sound waves here on Earth. Same effect, same, same equation. Only difference would be you'd have to use the speed of sound if you're doing sound instead of the speed of light. And it really depends on the relative speed. How fast is everybody moving relative to one another? Doesn't matter who's actually doing the moving. So when we talk about you know this star is, this star is moving towards the Earth, doesn't mean the star is necessarily doing the moving. Maybe that star isn't. Maybe it's the Earth moving towards the star. 
More likely, it's some combination of the two moving in the same general direction. But overall, it means the two are moving towards each other. And that's what you measure with the Doppler effect. The Doppler effect cannot tell you who's doing the moving. Right? Could be one, could be the other. Out in space, there is no, you know, there is no base sort of reference. You know, where is everything at rest? There is no such thing. So, as compared to what we do here on the Earth. So everything moving relative to each other. Alrighty. Chapter 2, chapter 2. So the last part you will get a couple of questions on on the next exam. So don't, don't forget that. Uh, let's see. Let me get started on here. So now we've talked about the light. Now we want to look at you know, how do we observe the light. So we want to go through and talk about some of the, te- about some of the telescopes. Telescopes and their different properties that we, that we use. We've got a couple different telescopes pictured here. We've got a set of telescopes here uh, down in Chile, a very large telescope uh, array. And there's a set of actually four, one, two, three here and one off to the side. A set of four very large telescopes that are based on Earth looking up at the sky. And you may recognize Hubble Space Telescope image here up in orbit. Much, 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 much smaller than these telescopes. But does so much better work because it has the big advantage of not having to look through the Earth's atmosphere. So the Earth's atmosphere has a big blurring effect. So much smaller telescope, the Hubble Space Telescope's mirror is about a little less than two and a half meters across. That's about one, two, and another half of one of these again, and that's it. These mirrors would fill this room and go beyond. So if you put one of these mirrors, it would fill this entire room. That's how large these move. There are, there are now mirrors that are 10 and 12 meters across. And in fact, there are plans within the next decade or so, in the next 10 to 15 years, to do mirrors that are 20 or 30 meters across. So, you know, be dwarfing the size of this room. So it's a very small telescope. You know, by, by Earth standards, that's a very small telescope. Professional telescope, not compared to you know, the ones that you know, people are going to go out and buy. He, uh, Regular, you know, us, regular people are going to go out and buy. But for a professional telescope, it's a relatively small one. Only about two and a half meters across. These things will be, you know, eight, ten, even up to twelve meters in size for some of the largest telescopes now. So, what I'm going to look at first, and we'll start on today and then finish up on Friday, is optical telescopes. So, looking at telescopes for visible light. Then we'll go on, we'll come back later and look at telescopes that can actually observe other types of radiation. So there are telescopes that can observe infrared, ultraviolet, radio waves. Um, we'll get to radio waves here, but we'll look at those separately afterwards. So this whole first section really applies just to optical telescopes and telescopes that are used to observe visible light. And we'll talk about what happens, what, what is the reason, why do we need to keep making telescopes bigger and bigger? You know, what can we learn? What are we learning more by being able to get bigger telescopes? And high resolution astronomy is just being able to get more and more detail, to be able to see more and more detail. That's one of the reasons for the Hubble telescope, getting it up in orbit, is that it does not have to look through the Earth's atmosphere. If you've ever looked out at the stars at night on a hot, hazy night, they twinkle, right? The stars aren't changing. The stars aren't twinkling, really. The atmosphere is causing their light to jump around to different places and you see that as a twinkling. 
See, that's when you see them. It's not really the star that's doing anything itself. If you were up above the Earth's atmosphere, if you were standing on the surface of the moon looking out at those stars, they'd be nice and blazing, nice and steady. There'd be no twinkling. The twinkling is only due to the Earth's atmosphere. But what that means is that you see that star, the star is really right there. Okay? But you see it sometimes here, sometimes here, sometimes here, sometimes here. You know, obviously you're not going to see all those images at once, but one second you're seeing it here, then it's jumped here just because the Earth's atmosphere has shifted its position as that light comes through it, then it's here. That gives that star that twinkling effect. That means when you try to take an image of it, if you put a camera there and try to take it, you don't get a star, should be a little tiny point. You don't get that, you actually get a big disk for a star. That's not really the star. Again, that's the Earth's atmosphere. The Earth's atmosphere is just smearing out that light. Because as the light particles, as the light travels through the Earth's atmosphere, it starts, it starts in coming in nice and straight, but it starts getting zigging, zigzagging as you have turbulence in the atmosphere. And it starts coming from all different directions. You see it from slightly different. Not all over the sky. We're talking about a very, very small section of the sky. But it still turns what would be a tiny point and very much detail into a big smeared out image. So Hubble Space Telescope sees this. An even bigger telescope on the ground sees that kind of thing. Sees it all smeared out together. And then as I said, we'll come back and we'll look at radio astronomy and other astronomies and talk about that a little more probably either later Friday or on Monday. So let's start looking at a basic telescope here. Uh, there are two different, types of, two different types of optical telescopes. There are reflecting telescopes that use a mirror. So a reflecting telescope uses a mirror to focus the light, gather the light and focus it, and bring it to a focus. So you've got to collect all that light coming from the, from the sky. Collect all that light coming from the sky. So here's all these light rays coming from some distant star. They come in parallel here. They strike the mirror. Not like a bathroom mirror, right? Not straight and flat. That wouldn't do any good. It would send the light straight back. It's actually curved in a very specific shape to bring the light to a focus. So you bring the light to a focus there and then you can take a look at it. Now, kind of a problem with that in this image, right? You're trying to look at, if you want to put your eye there at that focus to look at this image, anything wrong? It'll be upside down, but if I put my head right here to look at this, what am I doing? I'm blocking the light. So if you have a relatively small telescope, this doesn't do, this doesn't work too good. We'll show you in a little bit there are ways that astronomers have to put other little mirrors here. You can put a small mirror here that brings this light to a focus, either straight back here through a hole in the main mirror or off to the side. So there are other ways to get that light out of there. So reflecting telescopes you know, naturally will bring the light to a focus, but it's not a place where you can necessarily put your, put your head and just look at it. Although there are some very large telescopes, used to be most of the large ones now, you know, everything, everything is completely digital and there are just cameras there to record it, but there are some of the large telescopes that used to have a, a cage here that a person could ride in. Now, got to talk about a real big telescope. If you're talking about a telescope that's only a couple meters across, 
you're going to block out most of the light. But when you start talking about telescopes that are four and five meters across, you can have a small cage there that can hold an astronomer to ride with his equipment during the night. Now, astronomers don't typically do that anymore. Typically now they're sitting in a nice warm control room while the telescope is out there in the cold weather. And the instruments are out there. And the images are just fed back by you know, video feeds to the control room. But there are cases where you can actually put a person, put a person up there in the focus on a very, lar- very, very large telescopes. So a reflecting telescope uses a mirror. So this all uses mirrors. In fact, I show you one there, but it's going to be you know, mirror or mirrors. You're going to need several mirrors in, act- in many cases to actually get the light to a place where you can observe it. So the light comes in, bounces off the specially curved mirror, brings it to a focus, and that's where you can observe the light. Or you can take that light, take that fo- so focused image, and bring it out to another place to be able to see it better. Now the other case that you can do is have a refracting telescope. And that uses lenses instead. Now a lens is uh, pictured here. The light rays come in. So light rays come in. Again, the surface has to be specially bent, specially curved. So it's ground just to the right shape. You can't just take a block of glass. It has to be curved so that the curvature starts very steep up here and very little curvature as you get to the middle. So the light rays coming straight through the middle don't get bent. The ones coming further and further up get bent significantly more. But the, whole, the purpose is the same. It's to take all these light rays coming from some distant astronomical object and bring them to a focus someplace where you can actually observe them. Now, what happens in it is depending on how, how steeply the glass is cut, you can get either bend it more or less. And the whole idea is just to get this shape exactly right. Just as you have to get the shape exactly right in a, in a, a reflecting telescope, you have to get the shape of your mirror just right. No, it has to be a very finely ground surface, almost perfect. One of the problems with Hubble Space Telescope, right? If you've heard when it was launched. Uh, it's, been 20, it's been 20 years now. So uh, it was originally launched. There was a mistake in grinding the mirror. And it was ground to just out of, the, out of, the, out of right shape. You know, from tiny fractions of an amount. Not talking, oh, it was a millimeter off even. You know, talking tiny, tiny fractions. But it was enough that when the first images came out, that instead of looking like these nice sharp ones they expected, they were all blurred out. So one of the shuttle missions had to go up and actually get correcting lenses in there, give it a pair of glasses, so that it could actually see things properly. So you have to get either one of these has to be ground to very precise shapes, very, very smooth, very, very perfectly shaped in order to focus the light to very sharp images. So that's what you're getting, that's what you're getting, getting here. So you can use a reflecting telescope using mirrors. A refracting telescope uses lenses. Hubble is well beyond its, its expected life already. It was originally like a 10, 10 or 15 year, I think. I think it was originally like 10 or 15 years. It was launched in 90. So yeah, it might have been like a 12 year or something. I'm, I'd have to look it up exactly what it was. But it, it's well beyond that now. It's gone. 
when, it, it's, when, it's, when it's light time ends, would it just crash back into the atmosphere to burn up or would it just stay orbiting? Right now, that, that it would, it would, it's in a low enough orbit that it, will, it would eventually decay and come back to Earth. Now, I'm figuring, and I have to remember what they were supposed to do. Uh, technically, they're supposed to, at least tell, any satellite launched recently, I don't remember when the cutoff was, is supposed to have some sort of exit plan, what you're going to do with it when it's gone. Now, some put in high Earth orbit, it doesn't matter, they're never coming back down. But something like the Space Telescope in a low Earth orbit, is going to come back down, it will come back down to the Earth eventually. So they're supposed to have some sort of source of uh, energy, some power source that could fuel them and put them into the right orbit so that they can crash it into the Pacific Ocean someplace. You know, you don't really want it coming down here. Not particularly, you know, or in the middle, or you know, in the middle of some place, in the middle of any place. You don't want to come down in the middle of any populated area, you know, crash in the middle of the ocean. And every satellite right now is supposed to have something like that to take care of it. But yeah, right now the, the Hubble Space Telescope is on its own. So it had its last servicing mission about a year, year and a half ago. And it cannot be serviced again. It's done. There's no way to get to it. And we don't have a way to send. The shuttles are retired, so there's no way to get anything up there to actually get to the, we don't have any way to get up to the telescope. So if something goes wrong with it now, then it's out, of, it's out of luck. It's not like you can send, somebody, send an astronaut up to fix it now. But consider we also got, it's been over 20, this was launched in April of 1990, so we've gotten 23 years out of it. Pretty good service out, out of the telescope. Okay. All right. So this is showing how the image forms in a telescope. The prime focus is just that initial focus. That's where everything wants to focus to when you look at a mirror here. So when you look at this here, you have the orange lines are showing the light from the top of your source, in this case a comet. So you have a comet here, the head of a comet, and the tail's coming back. And you have light from the top of the source is coming in and comes to a focus there, down there. Light from the bottom in the purple here and here comes to a focus up here, which means that the image is automatically inverted. So anytime you look through a telescope, the tele it's automatically upside down. So if you ever look through a telescope before, and you look at the moon or something, and then you go look at the moon out there, it's, something's wrong, right? Because everything's flipped upside down. It doesn't look quite what you'd expect. So astronomical telescopes will do that. Now there are ways to fix that. If you're using like a pair of binoculars, things aren't upside down, right? So what's wrong there? That's a telescope, essentially a little telescope. Is that if you put an other lenses in, you can actually, there are ways to invert the image. So there are ways to flip the image, but you know what? An astronomer doesn't need all that extra material. They don't really care whether the image is flipped upside down or not. Because once you take your image and it's now all digital, well, you can just flip it around if you want to. Or does it really matter which way the comet is pointing? That doesn't really mean anything to to the astronomer. The whole image is flipped, it really doesn't matter which direction it goes. But they will naturally, any optical telescope will naturally flip the image upside down. That doesn't matter whether it's reflecting or refracting, they'll both do the same thing. A lens will do the same kind of thing. The light from the top ends up on the bottom, light from the bottom ends up on the top, and your image ends up upside down. But that's the same again for any telescope and for most, for astronomical purposes it makes no difference. Now here's an example comparing them. So here's a little bit better image of a reflector. Here's the mirror down here, bringing the light 
comes down, comes up to that. Here's where the prime focus would be. So that's the initial place you'd want to be able to observe. But as I said, if this telescope is this big, actually, you know, there's lots of amateur telescopes that are about that size. What do we got there? About a 10, 11-inch telescope to our scale here. If I put my head in the way, I'm blocking all the light. So I can't sit there and look at the prime focus. But you can put a little small mirror there that will take that light, bring it out to an eyepiece. Now I can conveniently observe here while the vast majority of the light is still getting through. A refracting telescope does not have that problem. Light coming through goes straight through the tube and straight to the eyepiece. The difference, one difference though is, if you notice here you've got a very big reflecting telescope, big mirror. You've got a very small refracting telescope, right? Rel small lens compared to the size of this mirror. But look how long the tube is. Look how long the tube is here for a much bigger telescope. You can actually get a much, you can make a much more compact reflecting telescope because the light is bouncing around inside the tube. So you get, you can cut its size down significantly because the light here has to go straight through and come to the focus. Whereas here you can bounce it. So instead of flipping this around and coming through, you know, focus way, way down here someplace, it actually bounces and you condense the size of the telescope. Makes for a much smaller telescope when you are creating things with a mirror instead of with a lens. What else do I want to go through there? I think that should be good. Now, modern telescopes. Every modern telescope, every astronomical professional telescope that has been built in the last 115 years or so has been a reflecting telescope. So this is all astronomers have built for over 100 years now. There are still refracting telescopes using lenses that are small ones that are used you know, by amateurs that use, but any professional telescope that, is being, that has been built in the last hundred years is a reflecting telescope. The last big refracting telescope was built at the end, late 1800s, late 1890s it finished. Its lens was about a meter in size. That's a pretty big lens. Try to imagine getting one lens that piece. Now you've got to get the whole thing smooth. Can't have any air bubbles in it, right? And the lens isn't this thin, right? When you think about getting a mirror, the piece of this big, you're going to be having you know, a nice thick lens by the time you get there. Well, how, how much does glass weigh? Try to lift a big piece of glass, a meter wide, that thick? That thing weighs a ton, but more than a ton, <laughs> many tons. So that makes it difficult to be able to move around. So some of the problems, I'm trying to jumping ahead to some of the problems here. The large lens can be extremely heavy. And if you want to hold on to that lens, I can only hold on to it to the ends here. Right? I can't hold on to it in the middle. Right? It'd be like using my glasses and putting something to support them, you know, putting supports for them right behind the, the lens. Wouldn't do as much good, right? Make problems in terms of being able to see. So you can only support them around the edges. So if you imagine supporting a big piece of glass by the edge here, and as you're moving it around, gravity's pulling it down, gravity's pulling on that, right? it's going to start distorting. So you're going to start distorting your shape of your lens. So big problems with refracting telescopes are, they're, first of all, they're very heavy. You can only support them at the edge. That's a mirror. I can put anything I want to behind it. Yeah? Are they expanding the refractive 
Oh, yes. That's, one of the, that's why they haven't made a bigger one since then. Could we now? Yeah, if we wanted to make a 2-meter lens now, we could. But we already have a 2.4-meter telescope in orbit. We have 10 and 12-meter visible tele, uh, reflecting telescopes. What's the use of spending the money on making a big, mirror, big lens? But we could. We certainly could do, could do it now, but it would still be expensive. It would not be as expensive as it would have been that, at that point, but it still would be quite expensive. So we can only support it at the edges. Uh, one of the problems here, kind of jumping around here, but some of the light traveling through the lens is absorbed. Right? When you get a mirror, all the light bounces off and comes back to your focus. When you look at a lens, a little bit of the light is absorbed. Now, so a little bit of the light is absorbed coming through my glasses. Big deal, right? There's enough light coming through, it doesn't make any difference. When you're looking at very, very faint astronomical objects, you want every particle of light you can get. You don't want any of them being absorbed. So it causes some difficulty with looking at the very faintest objects. You also get that you need to get a very smooth surface, right? A mirror needs one perfectly smooth surface that you're reflecting off of. Lens has to have two, each edge. And so, and it can't have any air bubbles in it, right? You can't have it perfect not only at the edge but throughout. And then finally, and I'll come back and go into this slightly more on Friday, is that the light is reflected, is refracted differently depending on the wavelength. So you actually get problems with the refractor telescope reflecting things differently depending on the wavelength. I'm going to come back and go through that first one a little bit more on Friday before we head on to the rest of the telescopes. Question? Questions? Ready to go? Alrighty. Have a good one. I'll see you Friday.